You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On October 18th of 1945, an 18-year-old girl went missing when she was headed to a school dance at the Technical High School in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Canada. Her disappearance would quickly turn into a murder case, and the case itself and the story around it would actually span nearly 50 years. This week, we talk about the disappearance, the grisly discovery of the body, the confession, and the subsequent fallout from the confession nearly 50 years later. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Grisly Murder of Teresa DeCourcy. To GBNF. Last week's case was one that was filled with sadness and horror as we looked at the life and crimes of Catherine Knight from Australia. This week we return home to Canada and we're going to break down a murder of a beautiful young woman and the drama around a confession that came nearly 50 years after the murder. In a way, this is a story about what happens when you don't give up on an unsolved case and what we honestly hope that we can cause to happen in one of these cases that we cover. Certainly. Much like we like to keep stories both solved and unsolved out in the public's eyes in hopes that we can learn or solve those cases, investigators like in this story also don't ever want to give up. If you can imagine what it's like to find a case that you have no connection to and latch onto it as a true crime fan and hope for a resolution, imagine what it would be like if you had that extra level of attachment. We certainly hope that we never have to live through such a thing, but even just being from the same town can make you want to solve a case so much more. Add in that extra level of being a police officer or investigator and having that unsolved murder hanging over your head, you want to solve it. Well, I believe that in this week's story, they did just that. So let's get into the action and break down a story that's ending was five decades later. That is, if you believe that this was the ending. On October 18, 1945, Teresa de Courcy, an 18-year-old, would head to the Technical High School in Sault Ste. Marie for a school dance. Teresa was described by all as being one of the most beautiful girls at the school, and as you can imagine, with that beauty went the popularity. Teresa was also known to take part in school extracurriculars. She was a pleasant and outgoing young woman. 
Teresa was one of those people who loved to go to school dances. I don't know what things were like in 1945, but when we had school dances when I was growing up, it was like a celebration of all things popular. Kings and queens and drama to go around. I would assume that 1945 wasn't actually all that different. Some of the people at the dance would later recall seeing Teresa arrive at the school. They said that they saw her outside standing, speaking with a soldier, but others said that they had not seen Teresa at the school at all. One thing that was certain was that nobody had seen Teresa inside of the school at any point. That was certainly strange, but panic would set in when Teresa did not return home that night. The following morning, when they'd still not heard from Teresa, her parents called police and let them know that Teresa was missing and that they were fearing for her safety. By 10 a.m. that morning, word had spread and searches had started. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the searches to subsequently be called off as well. Within 30 minutes of searching, two students from the technical school, John Martignuk and Bruno Metza, had located a body that they believed belonged to Teresa. They were, of course, correct. Early reports were that Teresa's body had been located down by railway tracks, not that far from the school itself, in some bushes. Police would later say that her body was bruised and battered, and the markings in the gravel in the area led them to believe that Teresa had been involved in a fight along some gravel that ran alongside the tracks of the Canadian Pacific Railway. The railway tracks that were near where the body was found were used mostly for shunting engines and was not a part of the main line. Police said that Teresa was dragged from a point on the sidetrack that was approximately 120 feet north of the main line and to a cluster of bushes that was about 80 meters from the main line. Police also indicated that Teresa had marks on her neck that indicated a cord had been used to strangle and subdue her. Police also said that she had been the victim of a rape. The official police report on the discovery of the body said that, quote, her blonde hair and clothing were grotesquely disarranged and soiled, and her face, badly bruised, was covered by her hair. One of her shoes was missing from her left foot, unquote. It was reported as a ghastly sight. The thing was, there were a lot of reports around a similar thing and similar near misses around the same time that Teresa went missing and was murdered. Not long after hearing that Teresa's body had been found, Reverend A.G. Donald from St. Andrew's United Church told police and reporters that two young girls who were on the church choir had been accosted by a man on the same night that Teresa went missing. One of the girls said that she screamed very loudly when the man approached and he ran away. The second girl said that a man who covered his face with his hand had approached her, but she walked away quickly and managed to elude him. Reverend Donald said that both girls had taken a route to the church that led through the railway close to where Teresa was found. Also, about a week before Teresa was murdered, another student from the technical school was the victim of an attempted rape near the same area of the tracks. And, and then less than a week later, a woman who was taking her trash out of her house was grabbed by a prowler. She managed to break free and get back into her house. 
her window would be smashed by a bottle with a note inside that said, quote, don't identify, I kill, unquote. It certainly seems like at least some of these cases would have been done by the same person. That much does seem certain to me, especially the two attempted attacks on the night in question. It would appear that Sault Ste. Marie had a problem on their hands. The police treated the situation as such as well. While it wasn't completely clear whether the attacks, assaults, and attempted assaults were all related, it was believed that there was a, quote, sex maniac, unquote, responsible for at least some of the crimes. As you can imagine, especially in that time, people were scared. Sault Ste. Marie had become a city of dread. People were afraid for their safety and the safety of their families. Children were kept inside after dark. The normal hangout spots were all deserted, and canvassers even reported that doors were not being opened as much as usual. People were scared because there was no news on the killer, and unfortunately, that wasn't about to change. You know, when people say that the world hasn't changed over time, they are wrong. All I have to do is look at situations like this one. This was 1945, so while that was a long time ago, it really wasn't that long ago. Sadly, nowadays we have a murder in the city that we live in, and it doesn't change much. People talk about it and then forget about it. Back then, this poor young lady lost her life in an attack. She was raped and murdered. You're damn right that people should be scared. This should change things. Not long after the body was found, a $500 reward was offered by the police in the murder case. That number would quickly reach $1,000 when citizens from Sault Ste. Marie kicked in money and then the local Canadian Legion branch, Branch 25, also kicked in $500 to make it $1,500 that was available as a reward for the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Teresa's death. As far as public safety, City Council had advocated also for an auxiliary police force to be formed to try and help the public feel safer at night. However, before that was even completely organized, a group of roughly 100 citizens from the area around the school formed a vigilante night patrol to try and ensure the safety of everyone. Unfortunately, as far as things went on the police side of things, they didn't have much information to go on. The police ended up releasing all of their prime suspects because of the lack of evidence that they had. All that they really had to go on was the evidence that led them to believe that there could be a person from the military involved. The military angle came from reports at the dance that Teresa had been seen outside of the tech talking to a soldier, and also the fact that the police had recovered an army lanyard that could have come from a cadet uniform. Unfortunately, though, nobody was able to identify the soldier. The public's tension and fear grew because there was no resolution for the murder. The police had a run-in with a man who tried to grab the purse of another young woman, which led to a chase by the police. As the man was captured and arrested, the man started to scream loudly at the police. He said, I'm the killer. I'm the man who goes around molesting the girls. I'm the man you're looking for. Relief would be short-lived, though. Police determined that the man was not telling the truth at all. Police Chief Robertson said that the man was nothing more than a drunken crackpot. 
all would go quiet in the case. Less than a month after Teresa was murdered, police said that things were not looking good in terms of solving the case or finding the killer, and they were not wrong. Over the years, things would make the collective conscious remember Teresa DeCourcy and the murder, but her story and her case slowly disappeared from the attention of the public. People moved on, so to speak. The case, however, was never forgotten by police. As the 1980s turned into the 1990s, Teresa's case was the only murder case that had not been solved by the Sault Ste. Marie police. In 1991, police actually had another lead come up, but that wound up being another dead end in this case. However, as police explored that lead, it reinvigorated the desire and the resolve to solve this case and close it once and for all. Police would start going through files and backtracking through the years and years that had passed since Teresa was murdered, and they settled on a former suspect, Michael Leslie Hodgson. Michael had been a suspect in the 1940s, but because they had so little evidence to work with, they were unable to determine that he was in fact involved in the murder. Thus, charges were never brought against him. Police would track down Michael in the Plummer Hospital in 1992, and they would meet with him and interview him five different times. Michael was at this point a frail-looking man in his 70s. The sixth time that police would show up to speak with Michael, they arrested him for the murder of Teresa DeCourcy, 47 years after the murder. Lawyers would speculate that this may have been the longest amount of time between offense and arrest in any murder case in North America. The reality is that at least this gives hope to those who wait a long time. There is always a chance that someone might be arrested. Never give up hope. Of note, Michael actually spent time in the Kingston Penitentiary in the 1940s when he was convicted for attempted rape. The rape in question in that case happened just one week before Teresa was attacked and murdered. Both that case and Teresa's case had a lot of similarities. Both included students at the Tech, and both attacks took place near the school and in the field by the CPR tracks. Michael would only spend four months in prison for that crime. In 1992, Michael provided the police with a written statement that referenced meeting Teresa DeCourcy by the railway tracks and wrapping a rope around her neck. The detectives on the case were thrilled because they felt as though they had finally solved that unsolvable case from the past. However, the celebrations would not last very long. In early 1993, as Michael was at his prelim preliminary hearing for his charge of second-degree murder, the judge came down hard on the written statement that Michael had provided to police. The judge said that police had deviated from normal police tactics in getting that written statement. The judge said that police had misled Michael to gain his trust. They had even told Michael that there was a possibility of a pardon for him if he would help them to solve the case. They even promised him that nothing would happen to him. However, that of course was not true. Once they had his statement, police of course charged him with murder. In response, the police said that they did what they felt they needed to. They did not want to scare Michael and have him clam up when he started to talk to them about things. 
They felt that if they did not mislead Michael, they would not have received his confession. The judge would ultimately rule that the written confession could not be entered as evidence in the case because it was grossly tainted. The document held no legal weight. As that was the entire crux of their case, Michael would be released. He did not stand trial and would actually die less than a year later. However, all of this would at least bring a little bit more closure to the case that had driven the Sault Ste. Marie police batty for nearly 50 years, and also some closure in the case that had scared the daylights out of the residents of the Sioux. Okay, so I have to ask, what do you think about all of this? So much. Um, I'll start here. Based on all of the research and the reading that I did into this one, I have to say that I believe that the police got the right guy. Don't get me wrong, I know that we don't and never will know everything. But I think that eventually you just have to believe that not everything is a cover-up. I read a lot of people online that believe that the police just wanted to close up their one unsolved murder case, and so they took the route that they thought that they would have to to provide that. And I can see that if you want to look for a conspiracy, but I don't think that that was the case here. I guess I don't really know why. I just don't. I think that the police knew that they had their guy, and they knew that they had to get the confession. What about you? Do you believe that this was the murderer? I completely agree. I think this was the murderer, and I think even though there wasn't a lot of evidence, the police did what they had to do to prove to at least the residents that this was the guy. So in my mind, I feel more comforted because I do think that this was the guy and he even admitted it. Like why, it doesn't matter if you got it the wrong way, he admitted it. Wow. So There's a lot of situations in true crime where you get false confessions and things like that. I or know, or you're coerced. Like maybe they were like, well, think about this young girl, you know, and maybe, you know, this guy's 70 and dying anyways. He died a year later, less yeah. than a year later. So Maybe he was just like, okay, maybe he was convinced to like just say that he did it because at that point, who cares? He's dying anyway. I don't know. I don't think so. I, 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 it's like you said, I kind of get the feeling that like he did do it. And I think after all those years, you know, like guilt sets in or at least, you know, you're constantly looking over your back or something and he just wanted to get it over and done with. So the fact that they said, oh, you could be pardoned or whatever, he thought, oh, this is the perfect way to like ease my guilt or yeah. whatever um and so that's i understand that's why the judge said that was the wrong way to get the evidence but i think it was exactly what he needed to finally get it off his chest and that's why i think he is the murderer for sure like obviously like i said i agree with you one thing that i i don't know it just kind of struck me even now i think for the first time as we were recording is like when you first hear about stuff like this, I guess I'll ask you, like, the judge was like, oh, no, that confession is not evidence. You can't use that. How does that make you feel? Um, I guess, like, in a way, like, it's good because, you know, like, a lot of people, they do get, like, I won't, I'm using the word duped, but, I mean, they get kind of convinced when they're in a bad mental state or whatever, and that does make things very hard as the person who's being questioned because you're just kind of going with what you think is best for you and it's a very scary situation and it's intimidating so I think in some ways it's good 
But I think also there's situations where you just have to do what you need to do to get the information because you know that the only evidence you have is the confession. Right. So Yeah, I guess what came to my mind and what I really liked just thinking about this and kind of dwelling on it as we were recording is in this country and in a lot of other countries, we do say that we are innocent until proven guilty. And I think that like the entire world has shifted away from that so much lately. Like people like you're either good or bad. And like in the court of public opinion, if somebody says you did something nowadays, like guess what? You did it. You're written off. It's true. Even if you get like pardoned or the charges are dropped, like everybody in your circle. And if it's something that's in the public eye, like you're guilty forever. You know, it doesn't matter what you did. Like it is what it is to the public, you know, for sure. And I guess that that's why here I like this in a way, because it's like, we don't know that this guy did it. There's no DNA evidence. There's no, you know, there's no evidence. So the judge was right. And actually one thing I will throw in here is I read uh, later on that the judge actually knew and I believe went to school with and might have even been friends with um, Teresa. He actually said he had a crush on her in high school. So this was very personal to him. So I want to say kudos to the judge because the judge was like, okay, like literally we're going to send this man to prison because he signed a piece of paper that it looks like he might have been misled into signing and, and filling out. So I'm all for this, actually, believe it or not. Like, if you don't have any other evidence, like, if this is literally, you're just going to get in front of a jury or a judge and just say, oh, he said he did it. Like, that's not good enough. I mean, I guess all I'm going to say is, uh, in a way, I'm glad that he is gone, whether that's death or jail or whatever, because now there is a little bit of closure for Teresa's family or the other people that he had you know, potentially assaulted. Oh, for sure. I was going to say, like, Michael is not a good person. Like, he went to Kingston Penn for rape or attempted rape. And, you know, like, obviously, that probably wasn't the only time. So this guy is not innocent. I'm not advocating for him. I'm just advocating for our system. And I do think that, like, it is good that we need actual evidence that's passable to put someone in jail. Because there are people like Guy Paul Moran in this country who have spent most of their life behind bars and didn't do anything. Oh, for sure. And I I agree with that. Like, I'm one of those people that think that there's too many people that get wrongfully accused. But, um, yeah, I guess just the justice system and law and everything is just so complicated. I really give kudos to anyone who studies that. Um, But we just hope that more and more cases go on, that we can get more closure and we can have more evidence with all the technology we have today as opposed to, you know, 50 years ago. So For sure. Well, before we bid you adieu for the week, I wanted to tell everyone about our contest that's coming up. And I also know that Julie wants to share our latest hashtag be better moment that was sent in to us. If you want us to consider your story of you or someone else being better in the world around us, please email us or send us a DM on social media of the story. We love sharing these stories and genuinely believe that in this world around us and all the craziness in it, we all need to make a concerted effort to be better. It's so very true. I love getting these stories. Keep them coming. This week's story comes to us from all the way out in Regina, Saskatchewan. Robert wrote us on Facebook to share a simple story, but one that we just don't hear enough about these days. 
And actually, I love this story even more because of the narrative in the world around us and in movies lately. But tell the story first. Robert said, I was out backcountry camping for two weeks and I had left my car parked on the side of the road when I ventured in. When I re-emerged, for whatever reason, my car battery had died and I was unable to start my car to go home. I was in distress because I was a long way from anyone that I knew that could help me. As I was trying to figure out what my plan of action was, a car pulled up behind me and a man got out and asked me if I needed any help. I told him my situation and he told me to hang on. He went to his car and retrieved one of those battery charger get-ups and within minutes I was on my way home. He didn't have to stop, but he did and lo and behold he had the means to help me out. So to that man and everyone else out there, thank you for trying to hashtag be better. Uh, I think I know why you love this one so much, Lance. Honestly, we're all taught not to help our fellow man. And trust me, I get it. The world around us is downright scary. We have shows and movies showing us that pulling over to help someone is risky and almost certainly leads to death. But obviously, that's not really the case. Thank you, Robert, for sharing this story. And thank you to this man for stopping and helping someone that he didn't know. Please send in your hashtag Be Better stories. So, Lance, what was this contest you're talking about? All right. Well, as anyone that follows us on social media knows, we hit a milestone lately for streams. We officially crossed 10,000 streams, and we want to celebrate. Woo! We're going to start up another giveaway on social media this week, and we're going to give away some GBNF merch. Watch out on our socials for more details and to find out how you can win. We're excited and flattered. Thank you, each and every one of you, for listening. And we'll leave it right there. Watch the socials, be better, and we will talk to you again next week.